Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Blair, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show again. Always. Back in Sydney, we're talking about decarbonization and I guess this idea of we'll talk about responsible investing, ESG, that lens as well. Yep. But maybe to start a really cheeky one, um, you're obviously you know, head of investment strategy. How would you describe the macro or the economic environment in two sentences? Has anyone ever done this in two sentences? No. 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 <laughs> no way. Oh, look, it's, it's no question. It's all about inflation and it's about rates, but it's, it feels like, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, it feels the inflationary pressure is less. Uh, we're recording this. What, what day is this? 13th of April. 13th of April. Okay, Thursday. We had the CPI out of the US last night. It's obviously coming down. It's starting to slow. There's, the pressures are coming off. So what does that mean? We're already at three sentences, but uh, what does that mean? <laughs> it means that the rate... The, the, the tool that is being used by central banks, which is rate increases, are working. Um, it's yet to be seen. We've seen obviously pressure around banking systems. I think we had it was IMF talking around growth the other day around, you know, we've got, we need to wait and see how the flow on effects of this is. But, you know, it's, it's quite evident in data, in numbers uh, mm. that this is starting to work. What, what's yet to be seen and what the question is, is like how has a flow on effect for things like employment? Because that's going to be the, the real kicker at the back end. If that starts to tick a bit higher... Um, you will really start to see that, that those rate prices have actually come into full effect. Yeah, I think uh, we've still got a really tight labor market, it seems, here in Australia. And in the US. Yeah. yeah and the US. Like, well, well like below full employment, if you consider full employment 5%. So that's really positive. And that's where wage growth comes from generally. So we've talked about employment, but wage growth generally comes from now, instead of you being in a business and going, hey, I want more money, but I'm not sure. But if you switch jobs, you can probably ask, I don't know what the number is, call it 5%, 10%, I don't know. But you get that extra amount and that's where a lot of the wage growth is coming from. Uh, but it still isn't fully instilled. So that's the whole point of what central banks are trying to do. Don't let that get instilled. Don't let inflation get instilled into the, into the mindsets of people. Uh, and then that will wash off and get rates back down. Yep, cool. Um, second question is, in more recent, obviously, uh, being GlobalX, rapid rise of the business, even just in the past year, but what have you learned about investing in the past year? Uh, you've been doing this a long time, mate. But uh, yes. any recent ideas or reflections? Yeah, I think the 
we said this last time, the grey hairs obviously are pretty evident uh, around the GFC. I think this is where they came from, the GFC, like stress-induced pigment loss through the hair. Great, great um, result. Uh, no, I think what I think I think there's a couple of things. It's, I think, and this certainly for, for new investors, what you what I think is really evident is is that there is literally opportunities all the time, all the time. But that comes with a caveat, and the caveat is is you've got to have some learned knowledge to see those opportunities, what they are. So if you're very new to investing, which you know a lot of people are, probably hopefully a lot of your listeners are, and they're getting educated, that learned knowledge of a long time gives you the ability to spot those opportunities much quicker than someone who has to sort of work through that program. So I think you know what we've seen, and we can talk about this, is things like copper is a really good example. And this, you know, keep on this decarbonisation theme, and we can talk about this in much more detail um, later on. But when you see things like M and A happening in, in, in parts of the business, that that part of the cycle, so in terms of this commodity, something's going on. Something's going on. Now that doesn't mean it's top or the bottom, but you need to have a look at that and figure out: is this an investable solution for me right now? How do I want to invest in that? What does it look like for the long term? These big companies are doing these M and A. What does that mean? So, I think that's that's. So my view is. That, Always opportunities. You've got to always keep your eye on it. Even in sideways choppy markets and down markets, there's always opportunities. Um, it's just about being really on top of it. Mm. No, I like that. Um, and particularly like for newer investors who haven't experienced this before, uh, it's capital's got to go somewhere, right? It does. And look, I think it's an interesting thing that you can now get paid for cash. Um, so all these retirees, like people my parents' age, haven't been able to be paid for cash for such a long time and now they are getting paid mid to high fours, which is pretty, you know, 10 years, you didn't get anything. You got 0.5 if you are if you have zero debt. So capital's got to go somewhere. It's starting to gravitate towards, and we've seen what's happened in the US, you know, a lot of people moving to money markets and, and fixed income. Again, a space where you, you didn't get paid. So it does have to go somewhere, but equities, you know, that what that means is equities, you need to get an over and above outcome for that. What does that mean? You got to, again, you got to be really, got to really look closely and that may be stocks, it may be active managers, it may be ETFs, whatever the solution is. I'm not justifying into one, but just got to know then, again, this is where the learned knowledge bit comes in. Like have some, it's like when you've done your own research, right, on any buying anything. If you go into a shop and you go, oh, it's 20% off, but really it's probably not 20% off. They've just jacked up the price over a recent period. If you've been there for a long time and been watching something, that that particular product, whatever it is, you generally know what that, that base level prices, and you will know truly if it's really twenty percent off. It's exactly the same for investing. You just need to be there for a while before you pull the trigger. So that's why I personally don't love crypto because you don't have any time to get really good learned knowledge because you can't. It's moving so fast that there's not a lot of base there. But if you've been around in there and whether it's equities or other parts of the market, you get that learned knowledge and it helps you say, okay, that actually is a good opportunity right now because I've seen what's happened in the past before. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. Um, so obviously. I've been working with you and the team at uh, GlobalX and before that ETF Securities um, through podcasts and, and at events, uh, things like this. Um, but one thing that I haven't asked is like, there's obviously the lay of the land where it's really cemented in the ETF landscape in Australia where there's a, like the big six providers of ETFs. I'm curious how you think about the where GlobalX fits and what your speciality is. <clears throat> yeah, I think we're not trying to compete as a, so we're talking about more of a business yeah, strategy what? angle here. Yeah. So we're not trying to compete with the, the iShares and the Vanguards. They play a really important role 
in the full ecosystem of um, of the market here and obviously globally. You know, Vanguard and and iShares in the US dominate. iShares dominates in in uh, in Europe as well with some other some of the European players. So they're, they're vital and and they are a you know massive you know, pillars of the industry. And they obviously got the surrounding ones that we that we all know and, and Global X is including that. But I think Global X as a as a directive, and this is both out of the US business, the London business, we've got some South American businesses, is that we're trying to play in probably three key areas that don't, again, don't directly compete with these, you guys are doing, you know, ultra low cost, broad based index, again, which is great for portfolio builders, uh, is more around, you know, one, commodities, and we're going to talk a little bit about commodities today around the decarbonisation. So that what we're obviously well known for back in the ETF securities days and now Global X is gold with GOLD, you know, earning physical bullion, um, which has done exceptionally well, again, in the face of tougher markets back in the last year and early this year. Uh, that, and that, you know, that is physical metals plus, you know, equity-based commodities. And again, we'll talk about that. Uh, and then you've got the second sort of pillar being sort of income focus. We've got some US fixed income. We've got some other alternative income, things like... Um, Covered call ETFs, which which sound complicated on the surface, actually are um, aren't that aren't as complicated when you look into them, and some other areas around equity based high yield uh, as well. And then lastly, on the thematic space, which is I think some are also well known. ACDC is obviously quite well known, uh, and some of the other ones, and some of the tech the tech ones, Fang. Um, so those are the three pillars we want to play in. So we want to make sure we've got best of breed in those three pillars for investors, and we also want to make sure, and this is to the point of differentiation, where do we play, how do we help, that we're Bringing content, whether it's through podcasts or through the through the website or through uh, articles that help investors get informed, talked about, get that learned knowledge I mentioned earlier, to know when to. Oh, no, I'm not going to say, "Hey, go buy this now." That's not our job. We're not advisors, but we're going to give you and build up your confidence in what these investment themes are and why they may be relevant. Whether it's now, whether it's long term, whether it, you know, whether it's right for you as an investor, that's not always going to be your call. Uh, but you know, that's the you know that's that's the core of what I do is try to bring that content to life, make it digestible, talk through it. And I think the good thing is with those three pillars. Again, nothing against the the the, black, the vanguards and iShares. I don't have a lot to tell you about the uh, ASX 200 or the SP 500. It's it's what it is. It's a market cap based index. You know it. It's listed on the news. You can go that. It's, again, great. What they do is great. I can tell you a lot about decarbonisation and how to play these types of themes and how it potentially fits in a portfolio. So it's, it is it's a much more exciting idea to bring, make it relevant for people. Yeah, that's great. Um, we'll, t- we'll probably t- touch on all three of those areas as we talk about this this general movement of decarbonisation and um, the theme. We actually spoke about this when I was in Sydney la- last year in 2022 and we did a very short snippet um, that we then featured at our event. Uh, it was really popular actually. Uh, the, the little are you just telling me that now? No, or just, yeah. no, no, yeah, yeah. It's it not an ego boost. No, no, no it's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in that, you spoke about the move, like to like the decarbonization of the world, yep. and how this is a structural trend rather than maybe like a short term type yeah. thing. Uh, but a lot of people hear this, Blair, and they think, well, but like, like any context, like how big is it? How do I play it? What do I do? Um, what are the expressions of that? kind of overall structural trend? Like how do I express a view on it? So let's just jump into that and maybe explore this. You could, I guess maybe there's just some things that we should clarify is like, 
maybe even just the difference between decarbonization and like this idea of ESG or responsible yeah. investing. How do they play together, I guess, in your opinion? I think I think you can I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, and what, what we've been saying to some uh, some investors as well is even decarbonization as a as a general theme, as a general idea. It's also not mutually exclusive if you want to invest in fossil fuels. That's something that again, you can invest in. You can co-invest them. You might have one might be a shorter term view, might be a longer term view. Again, one hundred percent your call. But ESG and decarbonisation, while certainly intrinsically linked, are pretty different in structure. And I think if you think about ESG, though, it's pretty subjective in in its nature, in how it's how it's actually investable. So when you when you when you so you've got all these options around ESG now. Um, a, a lot of ETF providers have ESG funds. Uh, a lot of active managers has ESG funds. Uh, super funds have ESG options that you can pick out of. But it's just subjective. Like what it, <clears throat> your view and my view, without going into the, into the nitty gritty of it, of what is like how you know whether we're going to use really high level verbiage here around you know hot, light green to dark green. You might have a really strong band and say, "I want to go dark green, and I, I want to either <clears throat> take a lot out, you know, that I don't like, so a negative screen, take a lot out, take a lot of those things out of the uh, the possibility of a portfolio, whether that's again active or, or passive." And I might say, "Yeah, I'm okay with a bunch of that. I just want to take out these three things." So that, that and that's the subjective nature of it. So this is this is the probably the inherent problem. There's no benchmark or regime or whatever it is it goes this is esg this is what it is and this is what everyone has to follow because it can't be because it's subjective it's not like market cap where you go price of a share times only per share that's what the like the market cap is you just can't do that you just can't do that um so it's just it's a very different it's a very different premise and i i think i think for, for many people it's the ability to do that work and understand what they want out of ESG, like what do they want out of ESG, then they'll make a call if that's going to be right for them or not. So obviously the, the decarbonisation element would fit into the E in ESG. Yeah, I think it does. But here's an example. So we're going to talk about decarbonisation. We can talk about, you know, we can talk about copper. We mentioned it earlier. What you might find in some of those environmental style ESG, specific ESG funds would be a lot of potentially some of the diversified miners, some miners being taken out, negatively screened out. Inherently, uh, mining isn't that great for the earth, but it is it is absolutely vital if we are going to move to a decarbonized future. So, so they, they do sort of work, they can work together in that case. So you might have a an ASX 200 ESG fund, but if you look into it, I don't, I don't, I haven't looked into it in super detail, but the BHP and Rio's of the world might not be in there. They actually score, score reasonably well. If you look at MSCI's ESG ratings, they actually score reasonably well, uh, those two, those particular companies. But they might have done something that knocks out a score or whatever it is, you know. Um, so I think that they, they, those ideas are, again, they're quite separate in nature. Mm. So can you, from a, the bird's eye view then, can you give us like the lay, like the opportunity, the, 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 the biggest number you can think of in terms of what people – or what researchers have categorized as decarbonization and how that opportunity maybe compares to other things that we've seen before? I think the best number, and we might have talked about this last time, and so this is out of COP27, so this is the UN's essentially um, program around uh, 
decarbonisation in general. And, and there's been some accelerations from other parts of the UN on this. But COP27, the number that came out that was most interesting to me, and COP28 is coming out in December, so this may change, but was that the expectation to, and this is the infrastructure build to move to decarbonisation, um, was between four and six trillion US dollars every year to 2030. And oh, if you wow. think about where we are now on the decarbonisation movement, um, and we talked about this again last time, so this thing about this S-curve, it's an adoption curve of a technology or a, um, or a theme. And we're just past 30%. And the expectation is by, by 2030, so this is when this number, we're going to be at 60%. That's a dub- we're doubling. It's 100% central growth between 2020 and 2030. So this is the acceleration time. So this is why, I go back to that point I made earlier, Things are happening at the when we're in 2023, but earlier part of this decade, things like MA are happening to capture that growth at the back end of the decade when the acceleration is really starting to, to ramp up. So these numbers are, you know, US trillion, that's that's a that's they're seriously sizable numbers. And it is starting to be built into budgets. It is starting to to happen. You know, in Australia, we're we're very lucky we've got we've got everything. We've got everything. We've got coal, we've got gas. We've got bucket loads of sunshine and, and a bucket load of wind. So we really can't go wrong, but that's the problem is when you look outside Southeast Asia, some parts of Europe, they don't have that. So we go back to that old verbiage, we are the lucky country in this case. Again, we just keep getting the lucky country. It's very good to be here. But some of those other countries are having to, to change tack a little bit and go, well, what, where am I going to source my energy from? And this is where this, this, is where this spend is really vital. When you say M&A activity, I thought of Oz Minerals and BHP. Yep. Would that be an example of trying to capture that copper? Yep. So that's 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 an direct example. You got you got Oz Minerals and BHP. Um, there's it's been a bunch at the moment, and we can go into this in detail if you want. So Oz Minerals and BHP is one. Um, that's pretty much done. I would expect it to be sorted. You had Rio buy out its uh, majority partner in Mongolia called Turquoise Hill. That's a Canadian listed miner. That's done. So that's been merged in. Uh, you recently had on the lithium side, we had um, Albemarle try to take out Limestown. Uh, we now had also um, Glencore, which is a huge commodities trader and, and um, miner, uh, try to buy a large Canadian, I think Canadian listed company called Tech Resources. Yes, Tech. Yeah. So again, like this has happened. This has happened in six months. Yeah. So the, um, my point is that the acceleration in this space is t- starting now. Like this is this is it. So it's starting to move because when these miners do these things, they don't do them like they're not. They're thinking much further down the track. That you know, think about how integration. There's all these things like synergies, but you know, for a lot of these guys, it's access to true top grade. In the case of copper or lithium, true top grade, ready to go um, mining and resources. Whereas building a greenfields project takes years, years. And if someone like BHP is willing to go and spend that much money, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was th- maybe 30 bill. Um, maybe I'm wrong with that, so don't quote that number. Um, they're saying cert- to a certain degree, we're struggling to find really good opportunities in the greenfield space to go and do it ourselves. We're happy to pay a, a premium to take it off the market. Mm. That's uh, the competitive advantage of those big miners too, right? Like they've got the economies of scale. If the smaller miners falter or even sidestep, then- the big miners can gobble them up and capture that resource and develop it. Yeah, but I don't think Osmondals did anything necessarily. No, they didn't do anything wrong. Wrong, but 
it's it's just one of those things where BHP. I just try, I can't remember the year. I mean, BHP tried to take out Rio. That, was it Rio taking out BHP? This was like many, many years ago. Like that would have been a huge, huge. Those guys aren't getting taken out by anyone. They're too big. So they've got to always continually think about growth growth opportunities for themselves and their own commodity diversity mix. And if you go onto the BHP website now, as an example, go go have a look what all the wording is. Future forward looking. You know, they talk about decarbonisation. They're they're a, they're a 65, 70% iron ore miner, and that's where their focus is. So what are they doing? They're trying to play into that space and they're, and they're playing into copper. And a lot of their, again, a lot of their, their wording and their commentary is built around that, that sort of decarbonisation push. So they're getting, whether you say they're getting in front of the game or not, but that they're seeing this as a long-term idea and they're playing it now to do that. It was 2008, I just looked it up, when um, BHP and Rio were planning to merge. Yeah, that would have been a monster of a company. Um, so I guess one of the questions is like, so decarbonization, there would still be skeptics, I guess. People are like, is it just a fad? How do you know when something like this is legitimate? Is it this type of activity that you look for when you're thinking about themes? I think it is. Look, there's never the thing with all technologies, there's no like line in the sand. You go, it's not a fad anymore. We're on now. Um, and But you can look back to all types of technology and think the same thing, that there's – if you look at from a tech point of view, not technology, but tech point of view, and say the internet was one of them, or PCs, you know, there's always things that pop up all the time. Like magazine covers say this is a fad, or <clears throat> internet's only going to be for you know five percent of people. No one's going to use it, and we all know now that it's you know it's ingrained. So there's no, I don't think there's any magic formula that go here's how to spot a fad and here's how to spot a true fundamental paradigm shift. Um, but one of the areas that helps is government moves. And I think, I think to the point around energy production and sourcing of energy, I think it's, it's, I'm not saying it's obvious, it's not obvious, but it's pretty well ingrained into people now that the ability to try to access renewable types of sources of energy is going to be much better for the globe. You know, I think it's pretty unequivocal that, that climate change is, it's happening to a certain degree, and I'm not going to get into the politics of that. Um, but the solutions are one of the, the major solutions are energy infrastructure moving away from certainly brown coal to renewables, uh, and whether that's nuclear or not. Again, is, is a broader conversation. So that that's I think we said this last time. This is a um, this is a when not if situation. This is this is happening, and to my point earlier, we're sort of just about thirty percent of adoption that is moving towards sixty. And the trains left the station. Like it's it's on the way. Um, that those buildings are happening, offshore wind farms, um, huge scale solar, onshore wind farm. Like that that they are getting built out, both in Australia and globally now as we speak. So you, that that switch doesn't get turned off. Um, so the question always comes back to in the case of you know to your point around is it a fat or not? Like think about from the investability point of view, because you can still pick a trend and be right and be wrong. Because you pay way overs for that trend, and then that comes back to back to market. So you got to <clears throat> again. This goes back to my earlier point, which I'm somehow linking to quite nicely. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't plan that. But having the basis of what's happened previously and understanding, you know, and having that learned knowledge to say, okay, great, I can build on top of this. This is a this is a now a change in terms of what it is, what we're seeing, whether that's commodities, whether that's technology, whatever it is, 
and then you can sort of invest on top of that and try to you know yeah, obviously grow your wealth from that the the, the push from globalx recently has definitely been um I, it's like a lot of the focus you know around those three core areas that you mentioned like income metals um and like this idea of decarbonization is a massive one in the theme bucket because it is such a huge trend but even within decarbonization at globalx you have a bunch of different funds or etfs that target different opportunity sets so i think most people listening to this and myself included believe that and would like to invest in this trend and, and capture some of the value that comes from this i think people that maybe own bhp and rio and all those names we just mentioned mm. are probably already sitting pretty because they already have some exposure to this but if you were to break it down and maybe i think one of the things you mentioned last time we spoke about this was the amount of copper that needs to go into a car that's an ev is like astounding compared to a combustion engine as one example but maybe there are other examples of ways to play this just generally speaking as well yeah i think this and this comes back to some pretty basic fundamental economics and it just goes back to supply and demand it's a lot of, a lot of what you know i'm sure many of the listeners are, and i'm certainly not an economist done my fair share of economics but i'm not an economist yeah but if we think about how supply and demand sort of curve works there's essentially three inputs one is supply one is demand and the other one's going to be price so that so and then we talk about elasticity and elasticity all these sorts of things we won't get into those details but the idea is is that at a very very basic level um so i don't want to get blowback from the economists here <laughs> but uh at a very basic level if demand outstrips supply you get price rises and the opposite you know if supply is significantly higher than demand you're going to get price falls okay so we're gonna keep it quite simple so what what's happened and we use copper for example um because it's just an easy one and i think it's 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 capturing a lot of people's attention and twofold. One, because MA and the ability to buy copper on the Australian market is becoming less. So that's why in, in particular this fund's capturing um uh people's attention because it's a way to buy truly low cost global copper players. So that that's I'm not trying to plug a copper ETF. I'm just saying this is this yeah, is no. why it's good and I like it because people yeah, want to know, right? Yeah. So and the second so the second is the is the investment case. So supply and demand, you've got this situation where co- copper's been used for it's been used for millennia. Like it's essentially the best at a price point conductor we have, electricity conductor. It, actually, I saw a really good chart. I can't remember who it came from, so I want to source them. But JP Morgan, JP Morgan, uh, at a certain price point where substitution kicks in. So at certain price points, lithium's the same. Some substitution might kick in because it's too expensive to, and and essentially it goes to most of the time aluminium, but. Um, it's still a fair way to go before it kicks, hits that price point for copper. So the investment case is essentially supply and demand. So how do you play that out? Well, if you look at historically what supply and demand has looked like for copper, now the use case of copper has continually risen because what are we been building? So you, some of your, the, the old parlance of Dr. Copper is basically saying it's an economic, it's on a very similar economic trajectory as the global growth because if global growth is going really well, you're building things that need copper to conduct electricity. So what's happened generally is that supply and demand been quite tightly um, knit over time. So when you know when a miner sees demand starting to go up for certain reasons, again global growth, they will increase supply to match that. Great, that's a great system to sort of work off. The problem is, and this goes back to your point earlier, if we're in a situation 
to move decarbonisation, the amount of copper use that's needed is significantly higher than on the previous general infrastructure and general connectivity telecommunications type areas because the use case of an electric car, and it's in the name, electric, compared to a combustion engine, you need to move electricity around the car much more frequently and that's the driver of power. So to your point, you need between, depending on the car, three to five times the amount of copper. And the same can, exactly the same can be said for the infrastructure side. So moving from a, a, coal, a coal plant, um, uh, uh, a gas plant, whatever it might be, you are, again, you need to move that electricity generator back to the grid. But if you've got an offshore wind farm, it's in the name, it's offshore. You've got to get it back to the land, then move it back to the grid. So there's a whole bunch of copper that's needed to do that. So that, again, that's I think it's like five or six times the amount of copper than you would need in a traditional fossil fuel power plant. And the same can be said for you know, solar arrays. You've got all this connectivity that's needed, again, put back into the grid. Uh, and then it's the connectivity in general of the grid between states and all these other areas. And that's just Australia we're talking about. This is global. This is global in nature. So you've got this this outsized outsized demand that's going to come and is is coming, but can the supply keep up? So what generally happens is is that supply will ramp, but then what miners will note, copper is one of those areas. And I know we're gravitating on copper. We can talk about other commodities if you like, but it's not like they're finding super mega mines, really low C one costs every five minutes. They're just they're not that around anymore. Again, this is why MA is happening. Um, so we do, you know, again, I saw another note, I think it was from another investment bank. I'm not, I can't remember which one, but essentially supply will increase, will somewhat meet demand into the mid part of the decade. And then that supply starts to roll off, but demand doesn't roll off. It keeps increasing. So the expectation is, is that the copper price then obviously rises uh, and then you get, you know, long-term, long-term growth if you, obviously playing to copper i think the caveat of all that is that copper is generally bought mostly and refined out of china so it is something to keep a really close eye on is china it's like 50 percent. so keep a really close eye on china that's gonna they also play a huge role in copper demand and then copper price setting um based on that demand as well so look, I, I like the case the case stacks up for me is a long-term decal like really is that part of that decarbonization thing you get some good stats out of that um and it pair, it kind of pairs a little bit well with those people who have been lithium advocates as well over the last couple of years because it's a very similar mentality. But lithium's kind of got one use case. It's got multiple use cases. So it's not fully just dependent on this program where lithium's kind of reasonably dependent on the EV program to be successful. So in this bucket of – so we're looking at decarbonisation, but within that, if we just think about like electric vehicles and this grid of renewable energy, you've got things like you've got. The, I'm just trying to think of the products off the top of my head that GlobalX have launched. You've obviously got ACDC, yep. which is like battery tech and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you've got Wire, which is more recent, which is the copper. Copper. Yep. What else is there in range? So again, what we, what we try to do is give people options how they want to play this name without. We talked about copper. That's just one of the options. Up to, again, up to investors how they want to play. Um, so you've got copper through wire, ACDC, which is the whole supply chain around electric vehicles, not just lithium, the whole supply chain. Uh, you've got hydrogen. Again, very early days in hydrogen, especially green hydrogen. That, that's been, that, that fund's been around for just over a year now. We've got, we've got atom in the nuclear space, something that's very 
one of those things I speak to a lot of investors about is it's not in front of your face here in Australia, but if you go global, this is starting to become a, a, a pretty evident solution. It's not renewable, but it's a very low carbon solution. Um, so you can obviously look into that space. Uh, you can also then, this is one that's a little bit esoteric, but really interesting, which is the Carbon Credits Fund, yeah. which is playing into most of the European and US carbon credit space. So like, really interesting ideas around different angles to play what is a similar broader theme and some investors might gravitate to some areas some investors might gravitate to other areas it's about giving investors choice really in that space and that's what ETFs are good for I think the second part about ETFs in this idea this is not I'm not anti um, active funds but what you'll find active funds they have to like, they'll probably capture the whole thing in one fund we're saying and this is why ETFs are perfect for thematics is we can give you quite a narrow focus and that narrow focus will, will be copper, for example. I think the other one we've got is green metals fund where you go, okay, I want to capture all the metals that are part of this program. So that'll be lithium, that'll be um, cobalt, which is great, not very not very ESG, but it's going to be it's vital. The batteries, obviously lithium, um, uh, manganese, it's nickel, it's zinc. So... Again, I want to, as an investor, I want to play. I don't want to be narrow and be copper. I want to be broad and be capture all of those. I'll play that. There. Again, whatever whatever is you feel as an investor is right for you. Go back to that point I made earlier. We're trying to support a little bit around. Here's the uh, here's some of the research that might be help you form that view, and then you make your decision how you want to play it out. So, just one final question on this. Then, when we, I think we spoke on self wealth live. I think it was, and you shared a chart, and you showed that all of the funds that GlobalX offers on like the S curve. Yep. Um, obviously, you know, earlier stage um, tends to be where there's like more uncertainty, and that it's still developing. Where where would you plot the different funds? Just off the top of your head, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but like ACDC seems to me to be further along. It's interesting that it's not as far along as you think. Uh, it's such a big fund. It's a big fund, but we're not talking about the size of the fund. We're talking about like the adoption of the technology, and you know, walk, we're, we're sitting here above a reasonably busy street. Go out there and do a survey and count how many electric vehicles roll past. Uh, you'd be, I'd be blown away if it's five percent. Now, Australia's not a great um, idea for eight, so investment. You know, from the investment case in broad context, we're we're not. We're not really good. There's a really good chart we've got of, again, adoption of EVs. So the Nordics are miles ahead of everyone else. You know, this chart, this particular chart we've got, you've got even the US, which is, again, miles ahead of Australia, I think triple triple in terms of the number. I think we're, I think we're second last on this chart and Japan's the worst in terms of EV adoption. Toyota. Toyota. Um, but the big one's China, which is, you know, miles. It's basically... The, the essentially the global leader in in the drive towards renewable energy and the drive towards electric vehicles and they have a, they have a really good justified reason they've got huge amounts of pollution in the air and they want to get that back and they want to solve that problem we just don't have that driver need here we don't have obviously the infrastructure as well so I think it, it my view is for for ACDC and where we have it on this particular and I know we can probably provide this yeah, to we'll you put it in the show notes yeah you put the notes um, is further back in the sort of early adopters phase <clears throat> certainly for Australia it's early adopters. I don't know how many people do you know have got an EV? A couple. Yeah. So out of everyone you know, let's go, it's 100. That's 2%, right? You might know more people than that. You're a popular Pretty guy. limited circle. Okay. <laughs> of your 10 friends. Um, yeah. Uh, but that's my point. Again, we're probably not built here. We don't have the infrastructure. 
uh, it's not really meant for us. But it's a little bit earlier. Hydrogen's really at the start, especially green hydrogen. It is certainly a nascent technology. And the point of this curve is to say to you as an investor, and it's about it's kind of like about a framework, do I want to start early and maybe take some short-term pain uh, that potentially, and that's not, you know, the whole risk-reward thing potentially gives me long-term gain because um, you're likely to get more volatility earlier on in, that, in this curve because the technology is very nascent, because it's not bedded down, because the, the amount of use case for it isn't there yet. Maybe some of the companies aren't as fully formed. Which exactly right. You've got the opportunity for a company <clears throat> to go under is much higher. Yeah. It's much higher. Um, <clears throat> or if you want to go far right of this curve, you've got a situation where the, the growth's basically gone. So you're not going to be able to capture that. Um, <clears throat> now, if you thought about copper five years ago, you probably would have said it's fine the far right of this curve again because it's this linked to growth. But now with the decarbonisation, it probably pushes it back down. It's still never going to be. Yeah, it's more of a use case for it now. And it's kind of people are. Exactly. Industry is adopted. But I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't go as far. Like I think about themes as a general, like copper's not a theme. Copper's not a theme. Copper's a material. Uh, we had people sort of say, oh, I really like semiconductors. I think they're, that's a really good theme. It's not a theme. Semiconductors have been around since the 60s. Like it's not, They're not themes. Where an electric vehicle is a true paradigm shift theme where this is new in technology. It's moving. We're moving away from uh, traditional technology and combustion engines to a new technology. And the same with de- decarbonisation. Again, you know, wind farms aren't new necessarily, but the shift to, you know, to move away from coal into renewables is is happening and that's that's the theme so just note what the what truly themes are and what aren't necessarily themes as well yeah if anyone's listening to this and i think a great way to explore this is global x website has heaps of research but also uh you can just go to the holdings because etfs are very transparent you can see what's inside pop the hood on the etfs and have a look at the companies and see what's in there to get a sense of where the businesses are and if you want to look at those companies financials you can see, well, if this is such a big position in an ETF, how like, is this business mature or is it not? And it gives you a sense of where maybe we are in that adoption uh, of like the, in the entire S-curve of that, that thematic. I, I, <clears throat> ETFs are the greatest, like, you know, transparent source of – like if, if you really go, hey, I don't know what the top – some top cover miners are outside of Australia, go have a look. You can buy them yourself if you want. You know, that's, that's the transparency of them. <clears throat> but what you won't get, and this is me being from an ETF guy, is you don't get obviously get rebalancing, um, which is fine. Again, you might not want that. But that's fine. And you don't, you know, you need to be on top of it. You need to be, you know, by buying stocks in, gen- in general, you need to be absolutely closer to the to the game than not. Um, which is again, which for some people is great because you want to dive deep and understand that. I think the second part of ETFs is always helpful. If you look, and, and we're just going to use copper as, as the example through this episode, which I've decided not you, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, is that a lot of the names in that um, are things like Canadian listed miners or you know globally listed miners. So you're generally not going to go and buy them. I think some of the platforms these days have made it easier, which is great. But no, short and certainly to the US and some of the UK, but maybe Canada, I don't know how easy it is. And these are, these are some of the truly low-cost miners you can get globally. So- um, again, that this is like, ETFs just make that access so much easier for investors uh, instead of just again nothing against BHP and Rio um, and BHP in particular is in this copper fund. But <clears throat> if you want to go and buy, you know, the top five Canadian listed copper miners, you can do that. Yeah, go have a look, go and buy them yourself. But 
obviously ETFs make it easier because you can just buy it on the ASX and click your fingers and it's done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I've got one final question for you, which is kind of like a two-parter, Blair. I know you're a family guy. I know you've got kids. I know you think you're an investing guy. Um, I also know that you ride a motorbike to work, which is uh, very close to my heart. So I do appreciate that. Um, I know your kids are quite young as well, but I'm just curious how you talk to them about what you do and maybe about like the idea of finance in general. Like, How do you convey that message? Yeah, <clears throat> I was thinking about this in a different context to that question in that the, like the whole investment idea in comparison to personal finance, it's actually quite separate. I was talking, obviously, we're just coming off Easter. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's not in this in this space, and I'm like, they're very different skill sets. They're very different skill sets. I'm not, I'm not an expert on budgeting. I'm not an expert on, uh, you know, in general, like how to save best. And I'm sure you probably are much much more the expert on me than this. <clears throat> but I think for me, with the with kids, and it's it's very hard because their their attention span is. Um, less than a second, but um, many many years ago, and you know, obviously with Dolomites and the other, people who are old enough remember they used to have St George ones as well, the Dragon that you put money in, it was great. But many many years ago, I used to work at um, Commod Bank, and and um, in particular the building here in Sydney in Martin Place, which the money boxes were of. So I had this like you know sentimental thing. I give my kids these money boxes, you know, um, to use. They don't use them very well. So what I've done is to try to get away from that is, you know, look to things like share investments or, or ETF investments in particular to help build their wealth and just try as best I can to, to say, hey, just so you know, every month you're not getting money, but you'll get, we're, we're building you for the, you know, when you're 18. Now, do they get that? Look, my kids are pretty young. They probably, they probably don't get it, but I think in the next couple of years they will. Because they see the dollar value that's grown, and they can, you know, show them and make the evidence there that you know by doing this once a month, whatever it is, that become, you know, for me, the hope is, the fingers crossed, hope is that it becomes habitual, and if that becomes habitual, then that gives them a huge leg up for, and you know, exactly what super does and compounding everything, usually up to anyone else who hasn't done that since they were young. So it's a great thing to do. It's it's early days, mate. I don't don't. Uh, for all those listeners, don't take my advice this way. But I think you know, any anything is starting out is going to be helpful. That that's the very basic premise of it. So whatever amount of money you can put, and whether that whether that's in heaps of different options, I guess Vanguard's got an easy one that you can use. I don't know, there's a bunch of different ones. Um, you know, to take advantage of that because you know if you can get them there, when they get to say ten years old, you start to educate them. It's a pretty good. It's a pretty good life skill to teach them. I think. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, you actually covered both my points, which is for partners or parents as well. I think you covered all bases pretty succinctly there. I, uh, my younger sister's about twelve years old, and it took her to eleven to try and figure it out. But actually, she was a big reader, and uh, we got her the uh, the Barefoot Investor book, oh, the yeah. new one, and that worked wonders. It honestly just light bulb moment after light bulb moment, and then all of a sudden it's like, can you invest for me? Can you show me how to do it? Um, which is really cool. It's a great experience, but it took her to till that stage, like many years of me trying, didn't really pay off. But I used ETFs um, many years ago uh, for her birthdays. I just put money away, and that was perfect. Yeah, this is, look, I think the thing is, and this is where technology's helped. Like the the roadblock, the roadblock of not being able to invest for kids is understandably from a tax perspective. That's why they don't need to do it, but it makes it harder because you've got to have 
informal trust, whatever it might be. So, the, but the technology these days has made that easier to sort of set up set up mini kids accounts um, rather than just a bank account, which owns them basically nothing. You can help them say, "Hey, this investing thing's pretty good, especially if you do it for the long term." It's great. Teach them the compounding. It just stacks up. It just really stacks up. I like it, mate. Well, if people want to learn more about um, about you and about all of the funds and the opportunities that we mentioned, maybe not me. Maybe about the funds. Yeah, yeah. People get very bored to look, look up maybe five. <laughs> but seconds. they can see all the the previous interviews that we've done and the things that you put out. Um, they'll be available in the show notes. And also, like all of the, I'd encourage everyone to read the PDS and look at the white papers that are available on the GlobalX website. Uh, where you can learn about the opportunities. You can see this S-curve that we're talking about and where the different themes and different funds sit along that S-curve. I think it gives people a great perspective on the risk versus reward opportunity and the volatility. As yeah, and I, you know what? I'd implore people to, <clears throat> if you go on our website or any, any ETF issues website and you feel like it's missing something, whether it's research or information, do not hesitate. This is, again, the power of compared to if you, if you were to, ping BHP and say, hey, I want these things. And we're going to go, hmm, I'm not too sure. Each official is going to help you. They're going to find a way to help you. <clears throat> so reach out to them. Yeah. And that's from the big that's from the big Vanguard iShares guys to us. Like, we're going to find a way to help you. And, you know, the ideas that you have will help us get better anyway. So by all means, reach out. I think a lot of people underestimate the ability, their ability to reach out. So that's, that's a great reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mate, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Always. Love it. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.